0: Navigating changes, big and small, is something that we have to do every single day. I'm excited to introduce to you Brad Stolberg as we talk about rugged flexibility, mastering change, and building resilience on today's episode. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about high performance and well being, and I'm your host, Sonia.
1: Like neuroscientists have identified these different pathways and a seeking pathway is one where we are goal driven and we have agency. And a seeking pathway is often associated with positive affect. That's probably why I said curiosity is positive. And the rage pathway is when we feel despair, overwhelm, anger, sadness, rage, It's exactly what it sounds like. And it's a zero sum game. Like the seeking pathway and the rage pathway cannot be activated at the same time. So I think that if we're curious, then we're like in this seeking, curious, positive mode. And it doesn't let like that despair pathway get activated. So I think that's the power in curiosity. Because otherwise, when you're engaging in a habit like that, it's very easy to get into self-judgment and guilt and shame, which we know does not help people change behavior. It actually makes the behavior more entrenched. So if anything, like curiosity gets you out of that despair, overwhelm, self-judgment and into more of like a problem solving going toward positive mode.
0: I'm really excited about today's episode because Brad has been on the show not once, not twice, not three times, but I believe that this is his fourth time on the show because I've had him on for every single book that he has written and all of them are incredible. You last heard him on the show when we talked about his book The Practice of Groundedness and I highly recommend you check out that episode. My number one takeaway today is the concept of order, disorder, reorder, because a lot of times a big change will happen in our lives, whether it's chosen or not. And we think that we have to, quote, get back to normal. But we are different after that thing happens. And maybe the world is different after that thing happens. So we have to reorder our lives and move on from a different perspective. And sometimes that perspective is even better than it used to be. Another thing that I loved about today's episode is the metaphor that Brad uses for talking about diversifying your identity. And if you pay attention to my work, you notice that while I am a professional athlete and have been for over 15 years, I do lots of other things. And its it just comes naturally to me because I have many interests that I like to pursue, but it's also served me well to have multiple rooms in my house. So that's how Brad talks about it. You have a house and each room is a piece of your identity. And if you spend too much time in one room or you don't have any rooms in your house except for one, that can be a big problem if something happens to that one room. I've been spending a lot of time in the academic room of my house working on my master's degree in applied positive psychology from the University of Pennsylvania. And if you want to check out some of the things that I've learned, make sure that you listen to my solo episode that came out a couple of weeks ago. And every month, I will be coming out with a solo episode telling you about my newest learnings. A book that you might be interested in that I'm just finishing reading is called How People Matter by Isaac Prilatensky. And it is all about how we need to have fairness and justice and dignity in our lives and how mattering is a sense of feeling valued and adding value. And there's many domains across which that happens. So I highly recommend that you check out that book because it's been something that's made me really think and it's been a game changer for a lot of my fellow classmates. Isaac Perlatinsky will be lecturing for us this weekend. So I'm really looking forward to that and to another three-day immersion weekend. My hopes when I started this master's degree would be that it would take a lot of concepts that I have been studying on my own and help me deepen my understanding. And it has done that and so much more. It has made me a much better writer through over 15 hours a week of writing that I am doing. I've been exposed to many new ideas and researchers that have helped broaden and deepen what I know about well-being and how that interacts with high performance and achievement, which is what my focus is on in this master's degree. But enough about that. Let's get into today's show, Master of Change with Brad Stolberg. I got to meet Brad in person finally after many years of meeting up on my podcast when I was in North Carolina for the Pisgah stage race. And it was really cool to hang out, play basketball, see our kids um, interacting. And it's always fun to meet people in person after many years of a digital relationship. Something you know that I am passionate about is curiosity, and that is something we talked about a lot, the power of curiosity. And as a regular contributor to the New York Times, a contributing editor to Outside Magazine, and the creator of the Growth Equation blog and podcast, Brad offers a unique perspective on motivation, values-driven excellence, and maximizing one's potential. He and I are in the same wheelhouse, and we are passionate about very similar topics. And I've learned a lot from Brad. We dive into the complexities of identity, discussing how our various roles from parent to athlete come together to form an integrated whole. We talk about how making changes from a place of strength versus weaknesses urges us to assess the bigger picture before embarking on transformative journeys. And that has been something that I have thought about a lot because there has been a lot of change in my life. After becoming a mom of two kids, I moved to Canada 10 years ago, I'm constantly adding new things. And whenever things are challenging, whenever you're sick, whenever you're tired, whenever you're really struggling, you start doubting yourself and you start wondering if now is the time that maybe you should make changes. And I've learned that that is not a good time to be thinking about when, what and when you should do next. Making changes from a, a place of strength will give you a better perspective instead of trying to maybe fill a hole or run away from something or just give up because it feels hard. And I think that that is one of the keys to resilience. Brad also shares some profound insights into the philosophical and psychological foundations of excellence. It doesn't matter if you're pursuing Olympic qualifications, starting a business, creating a masterpiece, or raising a family. The practices for fulfillment, sustainable success, and well-being remain the same for everyone. And they're all backed by scientific evidence. And I should know because I am studying all of the scientific evidence of excellence and well-being and what it means to live a good life. This conversation came at a perfect time for me, and I hope it helps you too. These practical insights will help you build resilience and master change in all aspects of life. And it is something that we will always have to manage because change is our only constant. Don't miss the opportunity to explore the art, science, and practice of achieving a more fulfilling and sustainable kind of success in today's show. If you found today's episode enlightening and want to hear more, make sure to subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. I know that every podcast host says that and most of us hear it and don't actually do it. So if you have a second, I would greatly appreciate it. And so would my team so that this show can find other people. And we have had so many incredible guests. In fact, we are rounding the corner to 400 episodes, which is incredible and hard to imagine. 400 episodes is just around the corner. If you are curious about past episodes, maybe today is your first episode, maybe you've been listening for a while, but man, that is a lot of episodes to hack through. You can go to sonyalooney.com slash podcasts, where you can find a drop down menu and select based on topic that you are interested in. And something that is on my long-term plan is coming up with some episode starter packs based on topic. That way, it will help you sift through all of the most amazing guests and topics on this show. So please leave us a review. Share the show with your friends, as that is the best way to help it find others. And I sincerely hope that you enjoy my conversation with Brad Solberg. Brad, welcome back to the show.
1: Hey, it's really, really good to be back. Thanks.
0: I think... I think this might be your third, third time on the show, or maybe fourth. I don't know, but I'm excited that you're back.
1: <laughs> yeah, me too. It's always a pleasure to get to talk to you about the things that we both care about and think about.
0: Yeah, and this time it's kind of fun because I've actually met you in person now. I got to go to your house in Asheville and hang out, and that was really fun.
1: Yeah, we played basketball. We had kids. We had kids eating, falling out of cars, all the normal <laughs> stuff that happens when you get four young people together. Lila had just, Lila was like three months then. So she was really teeny, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Super little.
1: Yeah. It was so great to meet your family.
0: So let's launch right in. Um, We're talking about parenthood and kids. Your book is about change. And, you know, a lot of the things that you talk about are about navigating the self, um, the process of becoming. So when it comes to becoming a parent, how did you navigate this whole landscape of change? Because there's a lot of change that happens.
1: There is. And I don't think there's one one right or wrong way to go about it. I think it's just helpful to have some frameworks and some words to make sense of your experience. I didn't have them the first time around with my my first kid, and I wish I would have. It was really hard for me when I first had a kid. I don't like babies, and I knew this in advance. And um, it felt like it was a lot of me giving and getting just nothing back, which is essentially like what a baby is for both parents. And you could argue that the mom gives a lot more because she's giving her entire body. But you could also say that the mom has certain hormones that the dad doesn't. So, like, it's just hard for everyone involved having a kid. And by no means am I equating like being a dad with giving birth. It's not that hard. It's, it's one is harder than the other, and it's not being the dad. But it was challenging for me. I'd say that I really started like loving my kid to death when he was two the first time around, which isn't surprising because like he could interact more. He started to have a personality and from there it's just gotten better every day. I think with our second child having been through it the first time and kind of knowing what to expect a little bit more and also having a good way of talking about these things with my wife who very much does like babies and like just not judging myself and, and kind of doing like a divide and conquer. Like I've got the older one who at the time was was what almost five when we had our our second, made it a lot easier. And then, you know, this framework of order, disorder, reorder and realizing that like having a kid is like a real disorder event. And it can be lovely, it can be hard, it can and often is both of those things for new parents. And just knowing that disorder is temporary. And then there's reorder, but that reorder is very different from where you started. And just kind of understanding that you're in that cycle and being able to label it and being able to say, all right, like we've left stability, we've left order, we're entering a phase of disorder and that's okay. This is completely normal and eventually we'll reorder and we'll find stability. That's just going to look different than it did before. And if I would have just had that the first time around, I think it would have made it a lot easier, but I, I didn't, which is why I wrote this book.
0: I have a couple of comments. I'm smiling because I'm thinking about the writing process, the order, disorder, reorder. <laughs> that's like the writing process uh, to, to a T. But you know, you mentioned two kids, right? So the first kid, you didn't really know what to expect. You knew that you didn't really like babies, but you didn't know what to expect. And that was a hard change. The second time you knew more what to expect. So the change was easier. So it sounds like you know navigating change when you know what to expect might be a little bit different than navigating change when you don't know what to expect.
1: Yeah, that's right. So Expectations have a really important role in our response to any kind of uncertainty or change. And if our expectations are in alignment with our reality, then we tend to be able to meet reality and take productive action. And we feel pretty good. We have agency, we feel, um, self-efficacy in those situations. Whereas if our expectations are different than our reality, we tend not to feel so good. So the extreme example is, imagine if you expected mile 20 of a marathon to feel easy. When you get to mile 20, you would freak out and probably quit the race. You'd think something's horribly wrong. Whereas when you get to mile 20 of a marathon and you expect it to feel hard because you've had a good coach or you've been there before, then it, it's still hard, but it's not as hard. Like you don't have that freak out moment. You don't have that, oh my God, what am I doing wrong moment? It's more like, oh, this is what it's supposed to be like. And if you're having an especially good day, you might even be pleasantly surprised at mile 20 of the marathon. And you're right. I think with the first kid, everyone says it's hard, but it's very easy to tell yourself, well, we've got this figured out. Like, you know, we got our stuff together. It can't possibly be that hard. And then it really is. Or to tell yourself, I'm going to love this child. It's going to change my life. The minute that I have this kid, I'm going to look into its eyes and then I'm going to be complete and then not have that happen, that can be heartbreaking. And that's an experience a lot of parents go through. And just knowing that like all of that's okay, it doesn't mean you're never gonna love your kid. It doesn't mean you're not a good parent. It doesn't mean something's broken about you. It doesn't mean that you don't have your stuff together. It just means that it's a massive disorder event and the best expectation to have is really just like, it's gonna be really hard. And I think that's right. I think that that is exactly the shift that happened going into the second one, which has paradoxically made it much easier and more enjoyable. The other way to think about expectations that I found really fascinating in researching for the book is that much like we have a physical immune system, we also have a psychological immune system. And much like a physical immune system, the first time that it is exposed to something novel, it like has this big immune response and you often feel really sick. This is why the coronavirus made so many people so sick it was very novel our immune system had never had experience with it but once you have that experience you gain some immunity and then the second time you get whatever it is it's generally not as bad because you've built up immunity this is the whole premise of vaccination it helps fast track this process and i think the first child well you have your psychological immune system has no immunity Like you have no idea what it's like. And it takes a long time to reorder and to make sense of it and to feel like you're healthy and in a good groove again for a lot of people. Whereas once you've been through that the second time, like it's a little bit easier. And this is true, obviously with parenting, but it's true with anything. The first time you lose a big race, you're heartbroken. And then you have a career and you start losing and winning big races. And like, it just, it doesn't disrupt you as much because your psychological immune system has seen that before. So then the question is like, well, can you vaccinate yourself against these things? Like do the equivalent? Like, can you, you know, have an orchid or adopt a dog? And is that going to prepare you for having a kid?
0: An orchid. I think it
1: helps, <laughs> but I don't, I, I, don't, I don't think it's the same. And I think that just the expectation for it to really be hard and then realizing that, yeah, you have to give your psychological immune system time to make sense of something that is completely novel and new.
0: I was excited when you mentioned psychological immune system, because I was reading a bunch of papers last night about it. And it's just so cool around expectations you know I've, I've done a lot of time i've spent a lot of time thinking about this and writing about this and there's there's two parts to this number 1 if you have the expectation that it should be hard which i think we should have you can also be pessimistic about it and hard and thinking something's hard versus thinking something is bad and hard are two different things and then secondly for performance there's the whole pygmalion effect where if you expect people to perform well they will perform better but they might not be happy. So, like, there's this paradox of performance and then feeling good about the performance. So, I guess that's two separate questions.
1: So, the first one tragic optimism, this term that was first coined by Viktor Frankl, I think is just like the most beautiful, elegant paradox of true meaning and happiness in life, which is to accept that life is full of tragedy, that we are going to experience physical and psychological pain. We are going to want to hold on to things that are impermanent. We're going to be frustrated and fail at times, and all that is going to hurt. There's no sugarcoating that. No amount of toxic positivity is going to make that go away or burying your head in the sand. And yet, despite all of that, or in some ways because all of that, we can also trudge forward with an optimistic, hopeful attitude nonetheless. And tragedy and optimism, they don't have to be opposites. They can actually be complementary and i really think more and more like that's the key to a good happy meaningful life is accepting both tragedy and optimism need not be opposites that they can go together i believe the formal definition of tragic optimism at least how i wrote about it is an acknowledgement and an acceptance of the inevitable suffering and hardship in life while at the same time a hopeful optimistic attitude and holding holding enough space for all of it so that's the mindset that i have because you're right you could have hard expectations and be a pessimist because of it, or you could expect it to be hard and be an optimist. And it's going to be a very different outcome and texture to, to how you live day to day. And then your second point, could you remind me?
0: Yeah. So well first I'll I'll make a quick comment about that. Is um this is actually something I'm writing a paper on right now, is that we need negative emotions for meaning and accomplishment. It's not just about having positive emotion all the time. And a lot of things that are the most meaningful to us are often things that cause suffering. And there's even a paper that was written about, called The Parenthood Paradox, actually, about happiness and meaning. Um, That makes sense, because if
1: you you care deeply about something, like, of course there's gonna be suffering because things, like, you can't control things. You can't control yourself, like aging and illness. Can't control your kids. Can't control who's going to show up on the race course. Can't control if you're going to get the promotion. So, like by definition, if you care deeply about something, at times it will cause frustration, pain, and suffering. Um, And I think that's just like part of the trade-off of like you can coast through life and not care and be like the the kids in middle school that were too cool to try in gym class because they were so scared they were going to lose, or you can care deeply and have all the benefits and richness and texture that comes with that. But also, it's going to come with some pain and suffering. And that's why it's so important to enjoy the highs because they bolster you when you're low and to have a a good social support system for when things are low. So, tragic optimism for the win. And then now I am remembering your second point, which was a really good one about like this kind of paradoxical notion of when you expect more out of someone or yourself, you tend to perform better, but it doesn't make you happier. And here I'd say just like internal versus external expectations. So you can hold yourself to excellence and your process to excellence and have very high expectations of what you put in and how you show up. And if you live in accordance to your values and then still have relatively low expectations of, are you going to win the race? Are you going to hit the best seller list? Is everything going to go to plan? And I think it's just separating that internal locus of control where high expectations are good and helpful versus the external locus of control where high expectations are not. So this is the difference in saying, I know you are going to have a great race and I expect you to have a great race. And I expect you to put out all your fitness and perform at your best and recover from missteps during the race versus saying, I know you're going to win the race because the first one accounts for a flat tire or a competitor showing up and performing out of their mind. Whereas the second one, you're, you're latched to the outcome. So I think it's different.
0: Yeah, so it sounds like you can classify internal expectations as more process oriented and external expectations as outcome oriented.
1: Yeah, and just always then doing the behavioral work of getting back into the process. Because intellectually, everyone knows this. But then, like when the external thing doesn't go as you wish, you're a human. You're going to get caught up in that and giving yourself some grace and saying, oh, yeah, like I care. Like back to tragic optimism, like this does suck because I cared and because being a human is hard and caring is hard. And I know that wallowing in this feeling isn't going to help. So I just need to get back to doing the actual thing itself.
0: So what happens when the F word comes up? It's not fair. It's not fair that I didn't get the thing that I worked so hard for.
1: I mean, I don't really buy that because I I also don't understand like even what fairness is. So let let me step back. In a sporting context, like if someone doped and cheated and beat you, that's not fair. Like they're breaking a rule. But if you had a flat tire, or the weather changed in a way that goes against how you want to perform, or someone else shows up and is not cheating and performs out of their mind, um, that is fair. Like You can't control everything, and um, you can't will the world to be on your terms. There's this great quote in the book from Bruce Springsteen that like being a mature adult means meeting the world on its terms, not your terms, on the world's terms, and like not giving up hope.
0: So, yeah. yeah, this this makes me think a little bit, though, about something I've heard you and um, Steve say on your podcast. And it's something that actually made me think a little bit like you said that and, and you I might be misquoting. So correct me if I'm wrong. There's there's like luck involved with certain things, though. And oh a ton,
1: a ton of luck.
0: And, and that's I think that's where that F F of fairness comes in is like, well, it's not fair that I'm not lucky like so and so and that I didn't have the same opportunity. I know I'm off in the weeds here, but I think this is an important point. So like luck, right? There's, there's luck involved. Like we'll, t- we'll talk about There's luck involved like, in
1: everything. Yeah.
0: Like making, making a list or getting a promotion. Like there's luck involved there. There's, there's your effort and there's your luck, but you might feel like it's not fair because you weren't lucky.
1: Got it. I, ooh, this is such an interesting question. I just think that then like fair is the wrong word. Like you didn't get lucky and that's, you, it still can be fair and you might just not have gotten lucky. Um, you had bad luck and that's like really hard to swallow, right? Because we don't want to, we don't want to acknowledge that. I mean, I think the ultimate example of this is cancer, right? Um, random cell division, lifestyle behaviors absolutely have an impact, but often not all the time, but often you can do everything right. Whatever that even means. Eat right. Don't smoke. Don't engage in too much like partying and drinking. And one cell doesn't divide right and mutates and you still have cancer. That is the definition of shitty luck. And a lot of people would say it's unfair. But then without sounding trite, then by definition, like life is unfair because this happens in life.
0: Yeah. And I think this is where that tragic optimism piece is kind of helpful, like bringing that in.
1: Yes. And, 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 and that's the challenge is like knowing that life is unfair. If we're going to use these words and that shitty things happen, um, how can we try to be optimistic nonetheless without falling into like Pollyanna thinking or delusional positivity, but surrounding ourselves with people that we love, trying to focus our attention and energy on meaningful pursuits that bring us joy, that then gives us the power to hopefully maintain that attitude of optimism. Certainly when our book doesn't hit the list or we lose the race, it's a lot harder When there's a cancer diagnosis, again, easy intellectually, very hard to do, but I think it's a good North star to aspire toward.
0: So something that you talk about a lot is having rugged flexibility. I think we're kind of knocking on the door here before you. So first, like, tell us what it is. And then I want to hear how you chose these specific words, because I'm sure that a lot of thought went into these two specific words.
1: Mm. So rugged flexibility is one of the central premises of the book and in the years of researching and reporting I did for this on how do people and to some extent organizations navigate uncertainty and sustain excellence over the long haul. So not just day to day or year to year, but like over a lifetime, over a career, throughout all sorts of changes, because research shows the average adult experiences over 35 major life changes. So how do you work through all of that? And come out with good performance and then also good fulfillment, happiness, and meaning. So like winning the inside game. And if you do well externally too, that's great. And what I found is that in order to do that, you have to be really rugged. You have to be really determined and strong and gritty and have stick to it. And control the things you control. have a lot of agency and self-efficacy and you also have to be really flexible. You have to be soft supple willing to bend go with the flow and so often we think of these terms as polar opposites right even just the way that i describe them like if you're rugged you're not flexible and vice versa yet it's very clear that the essential quality to navigating change over the course of a decade or two decades or a lifetime is to marry these things to be both rugged and flexible so what does this actually mean like how are you rugged and flexible I think at the highest level, it means knowing your core values, knowing the qualities and attributes that really make you who you are, that you care about, that you aspire towards. Those are your sources of ruggedness. That's like, those are your essential core features. And then being super flexible and adaptable on how you apply those over time and how you change the application of those over time. Um, I think that's one way to do it. And then I think the other main way, well, there's, there's all sorts of ways, but uh, the one that comes to my mind right now in this conversation is like having a rugged and flexible identity, um, which again is like knowing enough about yourself to have these core values, your sources of ruggedness, like that you know who you are, but then being real flexible in what they mean and how they change and how their application shifts um, as you live your life. And the
0: two words like those are two words that are very kind of specific and choosing words as a writer can be (laughs) a bit of a challenge. How did you decide on those two words or what were some other words that you were playing around with for this?
1: Yeah, it was, it was really, really hard to figure out what to call this. And, um, I called all of my writer friends and said, help, this is like the thing I'm pointing toward. And I described it. And, um, the, the closest we got was my friend Dave told me that I should call this the supple moose. <laughs> and I should just call the book the supple moose. And like, we should all try to be a supple moose. And um, I don't know what it was about that. I knew that I couldn't actually call this the supple moose. But the next morning I woke up and rugged flexibility popped into my mind.
0: That's awesome. The so moose. somehow
1: the supple moose <laughs> led to rugged flexibility. But it wasn't like I had rugged, then I had flexibility. It was a month, maybe even six weeks or two months of circling around like the right words for this paradox. Dave saying, just call it the supple moose. Me saying, that sounds cool, but I don't think it's going to work. And then the next morning, rugged flexibility popped into my mind.
0: I love that story. Thanks for sharing that. So Um,
1: yeah, you're talking about values are how the brain works.
0: It it is weird. And I'm wondering if like humor... Like, it, it kind of makes it lighter and adds a little bit of humor and kind of a mental picture. And I wonder if that kind of created more creativity in the moment.
1: Yeah, I think so. I do. I think like, you're, you know, you you are becoming an expert in this. And I hadn't thought of that, but I think you're right. I think like it probably like loosened the reins on my brain a little bit to shift into more of that like out there humor mode.
0: <laughs> I love it. I'll be thinking about every time I see a moose now, I'm going to smile. <laughs> Okay, so flexibility. We talked about values. We talked about values a lot on this podcast. But a big challenge with change is that you often have competing values. So we'll keep going, pulling on the thread of parenting. For me, you know, relationships, family—that wasn't near the top of the list for a really long time, admittedly. And you know, it sounds—it's like a little bit embarrassing to to say that, but that was just was my reality. And now. You know, family is important to me, and that competes with some of the other things that are really important to me. Like, I I love hard work, and I love applying that in many different domains. So, what do you do when you have competing values and some dissatisfaction because of those values, and that that comes because of change?
1: Yeah, you make trade offs, and it's so hard. And it's part of being a mature adult is like making those trade offs. The way that I write about this in the book is. We want to have a high degree of what researchers call self complexity. So, this means different parts of our identities that come together to form a cohesive whole. And how do you diversify your sense of self? Like, what does it mean to have these different parts of you when you don't necessarily always care the same about each part? And I like to think of it like a house. So, you have like your identity house. And if your house only has one room in it and that one room floods, you're screwed. Like there's nowhere to go. It's completely discombobulating. If you have a house with multiple rooms and one room floods, you can go spend time in other rooms. And I think when it comes to developing what I call a rugged and flexible identity, we want to make sure that we have multiple rooms in our identity house. Now that doesn't mean that you need to spend the same amount of time in every room, it doesn't mean that each room needs to be the same size. Doesn't mean that you can't renovate rooms. You can make additions. You can knock down rooms. It just means that you never want to just have one room in your identity house. And I think it's really helpful to put some constraints when you are someone that is driven and is a deeply caring person to say, Hey, during this season of my life, I'm going to spend a lot of time in the bike racing room, or I'm going to spend a lot of time in the parenting room. I'm gonna spend a lot of time in the, the creativity room. And then I'm going to do a check-in at the end of this season. And I'm going to say, hey, is this still like really where I want to be spending all that time? Or now is it just inertia? And throughout that whole process, you want to make sure that you never let the other rooms get moldy. So you got to spend just enough time in there, like to keep them in good enough shape. And then it's just a constant evaluating, like, are these the right rooms in my house? And am I spending the right proportional amount of time in each room? And what I love about this is in like an actual physical house, this plays out, you know, like. When you have like a full thriving family, like you spend a lot of time in the kitchen and the living room and then eventually like your kids might move out and then like you're spending more time in the library or maybe you have a, a stage where you get really into fitness. So you, you convert your basement into the gym and you're spending a lot of time in the gym. But like no one spends the same amount of time in each room of their actual house. Different life phases pull you to different rooms. And I think the same is true for identity.
0: Yeah, that was such a great metaphor. Like when I read that, I thought this is such a great way to explain this because it's hard for people to conceptually think of identity. And so turning it into something we're really familiar with is, is super helpful. But you know, with these rooms, this is something I struggle with is I don't actually have a problem staying in one room. I have a problem renovating my house and building too many rooms and then wanting to spend time in all of the rooms. So you know, when it comes to diversifying your identity, what do you have to say about making sure you don't add too many rooms into your house?
1: I think that... Um- First off, I think that there's nothing wrong with having a lot of rooms. And again, there's trade offs. Like, no one can judge, I don't think, the person that just has one or two rooms. I think one room is dangerous from a mental health standpoint. But like the person that's just obsessed with their craft and that's all that they do their whole life, um, you can't judge that person, I can't, as being like bad or making a poor choice. I actually think there's a lot of honor in that choice. I think the same is true for the dabbler that spends their life doing 180 things and is never great at any one, but just has a full life of experiences. I think that's a great way to live a life too. I think most people fall in between those two extremes. So first I'd say like non-judgment. I think at an individual level, it can become problematic if like you start feeling frantic or frenetic or like as a result of having all these rooms, you're shortchanging them or like you're being mediocre at all of them when you actually wanna be great at a few. And then to keep up with the, the metaphor, I think like you have to adopt the mindset of an architect and essentially say, hey, if I like have these four rooms on the top story, my house is going to collapse. So I can't. like It's just too many rooms up there. So now I have to choose. like Which one do I want right now? And it's going to be painful not to be able to have all four, but I just know the house will not stay. It will not be proportionate if I have all four rooms up there. And then you just have to ax two rooms for now knowing that at another point in your life, maybe you redo and you renovate and you add those two rooms back in in another way.
0: Yeah. I think when it comes to change, we talked about adding the rooms, which can be hard for people, but also closing the doors to those rooms or cutting them out of your house. And I almost think that cutting it out might be harder than adding because there's like a novelty, there's a richness involved and an excitement of adding something, but cutting something out, there's this fear, this opportunity cost of like, well, what am I, what am I going to miss out on if I close this door?
1: Yeah. And I think that cutting out is pretty stark. I think there's also just like shrinking, Mm -hmm. remodeling, changing the relationship to that room. You know, it's like the room that you used to have your trainer in and you used to spend all this time training in to try to make the Olympics or win a world championship, whatever the goal was. And then that room becomes the trophy room. And you put a leather chair in there. And now that's the room where you watch cycling and you rejoice and reminisce with your teammates as you age about the good old days and your kids mess around and play with the trophies. You're probably not spending 30 hours a week in that room anymore, but like, it's still a room in your identity house. Your relationship with it is just different.
0: So you mentioned self-complexity earlier as almost like a construct. Can you tell me more about that?
1: Yeah. So self-complexity, it's not my term. This is the the formal academic term. and it's hinged on these, these, these two factors. So the first is differentiation, which is the different distinct parts that you have to yourself, parent, athlete, creative, neighbor, coffee lover, musician, friend, lover, however you think about them. And then the second component is integration. So the degree to which those parts, even though they're distinct, they don't feel like you're a hundred different pieces. Like they fit together in a puzzle that makes you, you, you have a narrative around them or a harmony to them. And the higher degree of differentiation and integration someone has, the more they are quote unquote self-complex and the more self-complex you are, the better able you are to weather changes because you're just more robust. Like if you're not a one trick pony. Then you can take shots to one part of your system and still get through because you have all these other parts. This theory initially came out of evolutionary biology, where you'd look at species that would survive and persist for a very long period of time. And they had like high degrees of differentiation and integration. And then psychologists said, well, this can also apply on the time scale or the horizon of just one person's life. So I think to the extent that we can differentiate, but then also integrate, and, you know, back to this metaphor that is never going to end here, like what makes a beautiful house beautiful is like, it does, it has these different rooms and they do feel different and unique and like, they're interesting, but then like, there's also like this elegance in these hallways that like connect them and make them into a cohesive whole. And I think that's like what we're trying to build with our identities. At least that's what I argue in this book.
0: Yeah. And in terms of differentiation and integration, just being differentiated is kind of, it's, it's being focused on your ego. Maybe you're just trying to differentiate. And then the integration piece is like the part that brings it harmony. Is that, is that right?
1: That is right. Um, and I wouldn't necessarily say just focused on your ego. I think if you're too differentiated, it can feel like you're disjointed hmm. or like your life is like so compartmentalized that like, there's no like solid there, there. Whereas I think like if, if you have that harmony between the different pieces, it it feels better. And I think we all go through this, right? Like if we feel like, oh, I show up in this room and I'm just a mom or dad, I show up in this room and I'm just an athlete. I show up in this room and I'm just a writer. It can feel like you're leaving parts of you behind. And that can be pretty fragmenting and, and feel kind of icky. Whereas if you can like take those pieces of you everywhere you go and just kind of like wear different hats or talk about them in different ways. Like in this conversation, I'm very much right now in the role of a creative or a writer, right? Like we're having a conversation about my book, but I'm also like speaking with some parent here, some athlete here, some friend to you here. And it's all very integrated. Whereas if I felt like I had to leave all that behind and like just show up to do talking points for my book, it would not be the same experience. It it wouldn't be nearly as fun and probably wouldn't be as entertaining.
0: Yeah, and actually I'll, I'll say as a podcast host, like you don't wanna just go through somebody's book chapter by chapter as you're interviewing them because that's pretty boring.
1: <laughs> yeah, and and again like it's that disjointed feeling. So I think that that's that's where the integration comes in. At least that's how I think of it. Like when I sit down to write, I am going into writing mode and I'm in that distinct room, but I'm also bringing being a parent, being an athlete, being someone that loves music, being a neighbor like with me to write. It's just kind of like that's not the focus when I'm sitting down to write, but all that stuff's still there.
0: So I have another kind of question about identity and I have these kind of random notes that I've jotted down to him, like, oh, does this one make sense here? So sense of self, you know, our sense of self comes from our identity and our values. But we also have a self that's reflected by others. Mm. So those kind of can be different things. So, you know, how do we think about that when it comes to identity and, and this discussion around change and, and agency?
1: Ooh, this is, this is such a good, 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 good question. Like Thank you. <laughs> time goods, if I could say good, 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 fast enough. All right. So first I'm going to give you like the sciencey answer and then we can wax like spiritual and philosophical. So the science answer is anthropologists would call this the difference between an independent self and an interdependent self. So your independent self is influencing. It's separate from other people around you in your environment. It has a will It gets things done, it controls situations, it problem solves. That's your independent self. And your interdependent self is the self that is shaped by everything around you, by how you were parented, by what you ate that morning, by your friends, by your community. It views itself as relational and in conversation with everything around it, and it relies on its environment essentially for everything. And the truth is that we are always some degree of both those things at the same time. Like It is empirically and incontestably true that I, Brad, am here talking to you, Sonia, and we are having this conversation. And it's also empirically true that I am like the result of a million things around me that converge to bring us here in this moment. And both of those things are true at the same time. So I think that we are constantly being shaped by our environment and by people around us. And we're constantly shaping our environment and people around us. And- People want this or that, but like there is no physics or science or math that will possibly do it. It's this and that. So now to wax spiritual philosophical on this, you go all the way back to the beginning of Buddhism in the Pali Canon and the teaching that is like the thorniest for Buddhist scholars is around the self. And there's this one passage in the Pali Canon, which is the oldest Buddhist script that we have. And the buddha is asked by uh, vada gocha the wanderer whether or not there's a self and the buddha says essentially like yes there's a self and then vada says well i thought you taught no self and then the buddha says that's right there's no self and then he says well is there a self or is there not a self and then the buddha just remains silent and in these parables and in these this these texts when the buddha is silent it means like there is no answer so if this whole spiritual foundation that is built upon like enlightenment and releasing the ego if the founding father of this can't answer that question i think that like it's just a beautiful example of like where old wisdom and spirituality meets modern science um so what i would say is both those things can be true at the same time and i read about this in the book like bringing it back to, to current times is A sense of identity that is completely interdependent, that has no bounds and boundaries, like in a very specific setting, like if you're on a spiritual meditation retreat, like you could call it enlightenment, but otherwise, like it kind of looks like psychosis, like it is a disorder. You need some agency and some bounds, like to go to a grocery store, to hit the gas when the light turns from red to green, like we need our independent selves. But to overly latch on to an independent self and to forget about our relational selves and how important our environments are to us leads to neuroticism and anxiety. So, like, we really have to live in the middle of that unanswerable question.
0: Yeah, I'm worried I'm going to get too deep in the weeds, but this makes me think a little bit about like metacognition and then meta-awareness as kind of almost almost this sort of construct between the your independent self and interdependent self cuz like cognition you need cognition to be for there to be like the self like the self that has agency to do stuff then there's like the awareness piece and the awareness of the awareness which is almost like the non-self i don't know yeah i thinking. mean
1: that i know that I, listen if we're losing listeners that's fine cuz that makes total <laughs> sense to me and i think like that's the goal of spiritual practice is to spend more time in the non-self and um i think like that's That's why when people meditate and they have those moments of self melting away and they just like there, there's not even any more thinking or metacognition. There just is being, those are such beautiful moments, but anyone that's ever had those in meditation knows that they only last for a little. And if you chase them, you're going to be miserable. So like, I'm fortunate to have had a moment like that in meditation. And my very wise meditation teacher said like, good, like, don't try to have it again. You probably won't and what he was saying is like like you know that that's there and that's true but like you also are like this thinking self so go like live your life as this thinking self. So that's right. I think that I think that that's a really astute observation.
0: Thanks. Okay, so another thing I wanted to ask you about because this is something my husband and I have talked about a lot. Is sometimes when we make changes in our life, we feel driven to make a change from a point of weakness. Like things are not going well, so therefore I need to change my situation versus making changes from a point of strength. So an example is, should I retire as an athlete because I'm not getting the results that I want or that I don't, I'm not having fun anymore. And maybe you're not getting the results you want, or you're not having fun anymore because of other circumstances that are impacting you, not necessarily that you aren't enjoying the mastery process. So I think sometimes people make changes in their life because they're in this place of weakness without assessing the bigger picture. And then there's people that, you know, you see them go out on top, like, well, why are they going out on top when everything's going so well? And they're making change and decisions from a place of strength. So from, from the research you've done on change, what are your thoughts on this?
1: The, the question that I like to ask is, are you doing something because you're genuinely curious about it and interested to see what's going to happen next? Or are you doing something because you know you're prolonging the inevitable? And if the answer is the former, keep doing it. If the answer is the latter, it's time to let go. And the hardest question to face is like an athlete that's considering retirement, but it's also the most clarifying question. And I really think when people quit on top or when they retire on top, they ask themselves that question and they say, I'm no longer curious, like I've done it and now like i'm just prolonging the inevitable which is eventually my performance starts to suffer i age and I, I i decline so i might as well just do it now and i think people sometimes put off retirement because they're scared but once you feel like you are now prolonging the inevitable versus you're curious that's like a really good sign that it's probably time to let go and i think there's also just selection bias right so like the people that go out on top if they wouldn't have won the super bowl or the national championship or the world championship then, maybe they would have retired not happy, so I think it's like just it's interesting to consider that too.
0: It makes me think a little bit about Judd Brewer's work. like I know that I think he's one of your friends. He talks about using curiosity, and then if you want to break a bad habit using curiosity about the about that habit. So if you want to smoke, he tells people to smoke and then be curious about the experience, and then there's a disenchantment that happens from that curiosity. so you're almost using curiosity about why you're doing something. And then when you realize I'm prolonging the inevitable, that's the disenchantment that's coming from that curiosity that now you can no longer unsee and that helps you make that change.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Judson is brilliant and his his work on curiosity is I think just dynamite. I think that it's like curiosity is a positive emotion and maybe that's even too putting too much judgment on it. All right. Let me, I, I, let me get back to what I know in, in the research from the book, because I don't know if I'd call it a positive emotion. It's, maybe it's neutral. But curiosity activates the seeking pathway in the brain. Like Neuroscientists have identified these different pathways. And a seeking pathway is one where we are goal-driven and we have agency. And a seeking pathway is often associated with positive affect. That's probably why I said curiosity is positive. And the rage pathway is when we feel despair, overwhelm, anger, sadness, rage, it's exactly what it sounds like. And it's a zero sum game, like the seeking pathway and the rage pathway cannot be activated at the same time. So I think that if we're curious, then we're like in this seeking curious, positive mode. And it doesn't let like that despair pathway get activated. So I think that's the power in, in curiosity, because otherwise, when you're engaging in a habit like that, it's very easy to get into self-judgment and guilt and shame, which we know does not help people change behavior. It actually makes the the behavior more entrenched. So if anything, like curiosity gets you out of that despair, overwhelm, self-judgment and into more of like a problem solving going toward positive mode.
0: I think the positive emotion associated with curiosity is interest. Like that's kind of, that's one of the top 10 positive emotions. And then curiosity itself can be considered a strength, I think. I'm still learning about this stuff, but yeah. Okay, yeah that's, you'll know that's you'll, you'll,
1: If you don't already, you're going to know more than me about this soon. <laughs> but I do think you're right. I think interest is classified as a positive emotion. And I think curiosity and interest are close cousins.
0: So we've been talking about the importance of words, and this is sort of an observation that I've had about some of the ways that you speak. You rarely say should, but you often say ought to. We ought to do XYZ instead of we should do. Is that intentional?
1: Wait, I do say should or I no, don't. No, you say
0: ought you say I we ought to. Like you rarely say should, you usually say ought to. And I'm wondering if that's intentional.
1: Not intentional.
0: Cuz ought to sounds better than should, and I've been I've just been starting to notice other people when they use that instead of should.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I I don't like to use should and i once had a therapist tell me don't should all over yourself and clearly like that's pen- i guess that's penetrated my psyche i still think ought to is like judgmental more than i'd want it to be like i, I maybe i should work on see i just said should so now i'm <laughs> shitting all over myself like it comes full circle but i think like i wish or i want or it would be interesting to consider but you're right ought is better than should like it's less judgmental it's like oh, i ought Like yeah. Whereas I should, like, it's just so judgment laden. But no, that's that's happening without conscious thought. But a lot of like work, I'm not shitting all over myself.
0: All right. That was kind of an aside that I had. So change also includes changing your mind about things and being flexible in changing your mind. And we're just talking about judgment. The world is very polarized right now. Sometimes changing your mind can be really hard. What are some things that you've changed your mind over in the last couple of years?
1: Ooh, what a good question. Where to start? <laughs> a couple. I think the first one that I'll mention is diet and nutrition. I went from being very critical of anyone that said, like, keto, this, low carb, that, like, intermittent fasting. And now, I just think like humans are so diverse. And if you find something that works for you, that avoids highly processed foods, that's great. So I'm no longer going to be like, oh, like a keto bro, like this is a religion. It's like, all right, listen, if someone was really struggling with obesity and a ketogenic diet, like help them overcome that and get a, a healthier level of body fatness. And that's what works for them. Then like they found what has worked for them. So less, less critical on like the different diet cults. I still don't like when people sell something, but I think in general, like no one really knows about nutrition and there is a lot of personal experimentation. And if you find something that works for you, that's great. I still might find it insufferable if that's all that you talk about and you tell other people they ought to do it too, but that's okay. I think fitness trackers I've softened up on. I still think they can do a lot of harm, but I think that they're, they're helpful. And I used to think like they're, they weren't very helpful. They would just get in the way, but now I think they're helpful until they get in the way. And like the job of a good coach is to help someone identify when they're, they're useful versus when they're not. I think that a bigger topic that I've changed my mind on, or I'm in the process of changing my mind on, is I think just like the limits of labels for our identity. And maybe it's not even changing my mind. Maybe it's just like a more nuanced thinking in how labels work until they get in the way and how so much of our polarization is identity based but how it's true that we are all essentially humans and like you get on like the sporting field and like race like the stuff just doesn't matter ethnicity like your brothers your sisters you're in it together but on the other hand saying like we're all just human can't we all just get along like is such a cop out because there are very real differences based on race ethnicity sex gender other things and i think just holding both those things at the same time That like there are differences, and we're all essentially human. And I think there's so much in the culture of like clashing over people just completely wetting themselves in one of those two camps instead of realizing that they're both true. So those are those are a couple of examples of things where my thinking has um, has shifted.
0: Yeah, it sounds like you know you encourage dual thinking a lot, and maybe you noticed that in some places you weren't. Applying dual thinking, some of those examples you just gave. So applying dual thinking can help you be less critical.
1: Yes, non-dual thinking.
0: Non-dual it's thinking. Con- sorry, <laughs> it's, it's it's confusing.
1: <laughs> like you could argue it's dualistic thinking, but yes, non-dual thinking. But I think that that's a a, a really good astute in the moment observation. Because the other one I was going to say, which is just another example, is psychedelics. So I used to think like psychedelics was just like hype and kind of people looking for a shortcut, and like I found it pretty outrageous that people would call like. Taking psychedelics doing the work, you know, like you're literally tripping on mushrooms. But um, I think I was too judgmental. And now I think that psychedelics can be really powerful for certain people in certain situations. Um, and that's great. And they're a really important tool in the toolkit. And if they help people, then it's about finding those people that can be helped and using them in the right context. Um, so it's another area where I think I was kind of like this or that, or this doesn't work. And now I'm like, huh. Like it actually it depends. I've become a lot softer. Your um,
0: flexibility piece
1: softer on that. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of other things. I take a statin now, like this is like very in the weeds, but there's a particular longevity doctor, Peter Atia. He's written a very popular mm. book and I used to think like a lot of his stuff was just hype and I still like vehemently disagree with him on a lot, but he, in his work has convinced me to take a statin for my cholesterol. That's something that I changed my mind on. I picked up his book and I'm like, I'm going to hate this. And I actually really enjoyed it. And there were parts of it that I'm like, eh, I don't know. But, you know, started taking a medication because of it. Like, that's pretty powerful. And maybe I'll change my mind again and be like, I shouldn't be on a statin. Um, so I think it is. It's like trying to bring more nuance because there's very rare, it's, as much as we crave. And I, I, I should know this. I ought to know this because I literally wrote a book called Master of Change. As much as we crave certainty, like it's very hard to find. And maybe all of these areas are areas where I was leaning towards this or that certainty, and now I've accepted uncertainty.
0: Applying rugged flexibility to change your mind, and it's okay to change your mind. I think a lot of people think, well, you know, I've I've stood on this mountain, I've died on this mountain so many times that I'm not allowed to go explore another
1: mountain. Right? You're just being rugged, though. You're not being flexible. And I think the flip side is also true, though. Right? Like you look at someone that just like adopts the beliefs of the people around them, or like is a chameleon, and that's not very like. Attractive, we we don't think that's a great quality. So you don't want to be rigid or flexible. You want to be rugged and flexible. The supple moose.
0: <laughs> just title title this podcast be a supple moose.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, it would test it would test if it was a better title. The initial <laughs> title of the book was going to be rugged flexibility because it is like I think it's just the most important construct and term. And if readers walk away with anything, I want it to just be like this term and how to apply it is steered in their mind. But ultimately decided that Master of Change was more commercial because everyone knows what change is and rugged flexibility at first can be like it is. It's contradictory. But then I realized and it made me more comfortable with it that like Master of Change is a paradox in and of itself because like you can't master Mm -hmm. change because everything's always changing. And um, that got me really comfortable with the title.
0: Yeah. And the title is sort of descriptive as to what you're going to get versus people night. Rugged flexibility might be misinterpreted where people know kind of what change means. Everybody's experienced that.
1: Yeah. And everyone does want to be a master of change. But then you realize that like by definition, like there (laughs) is no mastering change because it's change. So I ended up really liking it.
0: So I have a last question for you. And it's actually about your podcast. So you and Steve have, how long has it been? Has it been a couple of years now?
1: We've been doing the podcast. It was a COVID started podcast like so many others. So we started it very early in the pandemic, which would have been 2020. So it's been almost four years. Wow, the yeah, I love your podcast.
0: So as a podcaster, and you know, you and Steve get to dissect a lot of ideas together, what's something that you've learned from being a podcaster versus being an author?
1: Mm. I can't believe you love my podcast. I learned that I'm so much better when I have a chance to edit. <laughs> what I want to say versus when I do it in real time. Like, I think my writing is so much better than my speaking because the way I write is like very brick by brick craftsperson-like, and I'm not a good first draft writer. I'm a good editor in a podcast. It's just all a first draft unless like you're doing a ton of editing, which we're not on our show. And I think it's taught me that I can be more comfortable with the the first draft and there's value in sharing the first draft just like there's value in sharing the the finished draft. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is just massive respect for the amount of like just for other podcasters and how hard it is to come up with interesting things to talk about week in and week out. And uh, and yeah, like I really am I'm I'm thrilled that you say that. And maybe I'm being too hard on myself, but like I don't think I'm as good as a podcaster as I am a writer. And I think that's part of the reason why it's good for me to do it is because like, it's not buttoned up. It's not edited. I will say, if you're listening to this, you should probably keep listening to Sonia's podcast and read my books. <laughs> You'll be a better off person for it. But yeah, I don't know. I'm a little insecure about it.
0: Hmm. Well, I really enjoy it. And I don't think it's a fair comparison to say I should be as good of a, a first draft speaker off the cuff as i should be a writer like they're not even the same thing cuz you get to massage words in when you're writing but you don't get to massage what you're saying what comes right out of your mouth and also how long have you been writing versus how long have you been th- doing the practice of podcasting
1: yeah in in time and attention paid to each i mean it's much more in the um in the the writing camp whereas the growth equation podcast is just very like compared to writing young and then also just raw and, and uncut. We we generally won't know the topic we're going to talk about until like 15 minutes before. So it really was born out of the idea that like we have these long conversations on the phone, my collaborative partner and I, so let's just record them. And then every once in a while we bring on guests and those are better episodes. <laughs>
0: Well the thing that comes out actually I disagree I prefer the ones with just you and Steve. And authenticity is what comes out of that first draft cuz when you're writing there there is authenticity in there but it's it's edited versus when you're just speaking there's like parts of you that are actually coming out.
1: Yeah. I would push back a little cuz in my own writing the authenticity never gets edited out what I would say is I just like I try to get it clearer and clearer. The author George Saunders who's like one of my favorite writers there is in 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 more so for his fiction than his nonfiction but he talks about how back to like your metacognition like writing is almost like a meditation practice because you're seeing all yourselves like Hmm. your first draft is like one self, and there's another part of you that like comes back and works on it and like you're kind of like constructing this work of art that is reflective of different selves so when i do it like i'm actually trying to get more authentic which each, mm. with each version, like closer to the truth mm-hmm. that I actually want to say. And maybe that's part of why podcast I feel less secure about is because like I'll say something and I'm like, oh, like it's not actually like it's not actually what I meant. And I think writing helps me do that.
0: I guess authenticity is the wrong word, but maybe like the part that makes somebody more human, like you like you you curse on your podcast. You don't curse in your book. Um you make like there's laughing, there's commentary, like those things don't come out in a book. So maybe that's what I meant by that.
1: Yeah, for sure. And and I'm thrilled that you enjoy that. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll keep swearing.
0: <laughs> okay, Brad. Well, I guess we have to wrap this up. Um, thanks so much for coming on the show. And I always am so excited when you have a new book come out because your work has really impacted me personally in my life. And it's also influenced the type of work that I do in the world. So thank you.
1: Thanks. It's always a pleasure to talk to you
0: where can people find, I know everybody knows the answer to this, but you, you're, you have to ask, where can people find your book?
1: <laughs> uh, anywhere. Um, <laughs> it, it's on the internet, it, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Uh, it's available internationally in Canada and the UK. Um, so if you just Google Master of Change and my name, you'll, you'll find it.
0: Do you think I should cut that question out at the end? Like just generally when I talk to authors, is that just like a silly question?
1: No, I mean, I think as an author, you like it because it's a reminder to people that like, hey, I've got this book. And maybe if you're self-published, the answer to that mm-hmm. is going to to be different. So no, I, I'm glad that I'm glad that you asked it. I'm glad that listeners are getting one more nudge to uh, to get the book. <laughs> you you ought so. you ought to get it. You ought Not to get you the book. <laughs> you ought to get the book. No, you
0: should get the book. <laughs>
1: um, thank you so much, and thanks, listeners, for coming along for this uncut ride. I hope that y'all enjoyed it. Thanks again for having me.
0: I hope you got a lot out of that episode that I recorded with Brad Solberg. Make sure to check out his books. And if you're curious about more, we recorded an episode on his previous book, The Practice of Groundedness, which is linked up in the show notes. If you found today's episode enlightening and want to hear more, make sure to subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and share this episode with athletes and goal getters alike. It's such a gift to be able to do this podcast and to learn from so many bright and brilliant minds. And as always, I am with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. I'll see you right back here next week.